Hello and welcome to The Revolution to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHDTV. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And with me today is Bob Runnels coming from Washington State. Hey, Bob, good to see you. Hi, Bernadette. How are you? I'm doing really well today. I have been you know, we for the second half of the hour, I'm going to be reviewing something that the NFID did. And I thought it would take me maybe two hours. But of course, six hours later, <laughs> you know, I think I could have spent a month with the details of what they got wrong or what they re did not say. But that's for the second uh, hour of the show. That will be fun uh, doing some rebuttals um, with you. Um, so in this first hour, though, Bob, we are bringing on a gentleman from, um, oh, first of all, I need to give my little disclosure here that the views expressed in this show are not necessarily those of the wonderful KKNW uh, or Children's Health Defense, but we are so grateful for this free speech platform in the United States of America. AM radio continues to be a haven of freedom and a place where we can discuss uh, exchange views. There, there's, you know, except for cuss words, there's really nothing that we can't, I can say ivermectin, I can say remdesivir is awful. I can say these things and it's wonderful um, because we can have real dialogue, which is what this country is all about, Bob. It's, it's pretty um, awesome. I do want to also add to our, our listeners out there, uh, if you appreciate free speech, live on the radio, um, please donate to informchoicewa.org. Um, it's donors who bring us this show, uh, two hours uh, through an actual live radio station in the greater Puget Sound. And then of course on podcast and, and, and streamed on CHD TV, but we cannot do this without uh, great, the listeners uh, contributing a little bit each month, you know, five or 10 bucks a month to informchoicewa.org can help make sure we stay on the air. So I thank you uh, for your don donations. Um, so yeah, so this first hour is really exciting, Bob, because, you know, for years, the vaccine debate has always devolved down to, do you believe in them? Almost as if it's a religion. Do you believe in vaccines? And you would bring up anything critical about it and you would be um, immediately, somebody would respond to, oh, Andrew Wakefield's a fraud. And it's like, where did that come from, right? I'm not talking about Andy Wakefield, who is not a fraud, who is a hero. Um, you couldn't get them to have this discussion, but one of the, the gifts of COVID has been people have sort of had the illusion lifted from their eyes about what vaccines are. And they're realizing these are actual manufactured pharmaceutical products. And now people are really even starting to think, well, how the heck do they even make these things? How do you get an mRNA lipid infilled lipid? Where does it come from, right? And so right. our next right. guest 
um, who's coming on now is Headley Reese, who is joining us. He is an expert on biopharmaceutical manufacturing processes, transportation. I mean, how basically how the hot dogs are made, you know, it's all about product. Hi, Headley. <laughs> Hi, Bernadette. How are you? Great to be on here today. Oh, thank you. It's, we're so uh, grateful to have you here. You have a book. I want to go ahead and share with um, with people about your book because I think it's a I think it's a fabulous description here, and it's going to help people really have an idea of sort of where the discussion's going here. So this is about your book. Pharmaceutical supply chains produce the drugs that enter a patient's body. If anything goes wrong in production, even though the regulatory authority has approved a drug for sale, it can have a devastating impact. So what do patients really know about what goes on in pharmaceutical supply chains? It seems not a lot. Recent events with COVID-19 have reinforced my, meaning the author Headley Reese's impression, that the general public do not understand that drugs have to be produced in the same way aero engines, aircraft, and silicon chips have to be produced. They also have to incur development lead times in the same way. That includes selecting materials, suppliers, processes, and a raft of other necessities before commercial production can begin. This book will provide you with the insights and knowledge you need, assuming you are keen to know. You will be surprised at what you learn. And the name of that book is What Patients Need to Know About, uh, colon, Pharmaceutical Supply Chains, and it's from uh, 2021. So um, thank you for authoring that book and educating um, the general public on this subject. Uh, yes, I should say that in 2011, I wrote Supply Chain Management in the Drug Industry, Delivering Patient Value for Pharmaceuticals and Biologics uh, for Wiley, uh, based in Hoboken, New Jersey. And that was a 450-page textbook on the industry, on the processes. It basically is a, a, a guide to everything you need to know about uh, developing, manufacturing, and dist dist distributing drugs. And in fact, while you've asked me to look at doing a second book now, which I'm in the process of, of looking at, but I've tried to sort of write easier to understand explanations of this whole process of developing drugs because it, I have done a, a, a comparison between developing the Dreamliner, the Boeing Dreamliner, and a drug. And the timelines work out about the same between 10 and 12 years because you have to go through the same stages. You have to build prototypes first. You have to look at the different prototypes. You select the one that you're going to go with and then you uh, order the components, having, having agreed the design with or the components with the contractors. Then you have to specify the production methods, the various stages, the undercarriage, the fuselage, the wings. And you have to do all of that. And you've got lead times involved. So you, know, you place an order for a wing. You might have to wait two years to get the first sort of prototype in. And that's why it takes so long. And I, I can tell you there's a myth that the industry has perpetrated all these years is that penicillin came to market 
as an accidental finding. In fact, that was a, that's a myth, and I won't go into too much of it, but uh, Fleming found a mold that was uh, killing bacteria, but he didn't know the active ingredient that was doing it. And it took him 11 years to hook up with Oxford University, and they could isolate the active ingredient, which then meant they could make small quantities and test it in animals and humans, and that gave them further evidence that penicillin was working. It was potentially a very good drug, but they couldn't make it in any more than ground quantities. So they flew over to the uh, predecessor to the FDA, the US Department of Agriculture, spoke to them, and there was a gentleman there who was an expert in the manufacture of molds, uh, Andrew J. Moyer, and he devised the process to increase the yield of penicillin exponentially so they could make ton quantities. And that process was given to a few of the big pharma companies, Merck, Pfizer, and they brought penicillin to market. So it actually took 20 years to get penicillin <laughs> to market. And it was a collaboration between a physician, which was what Fleming was, a process chemist, the University of Oxford, and experts in manufacture. And the, and the, the, the patent for that process went to Andrew Moyer in 1945. And he was inducted into the US Hall of Fame in 1954. Now that's been um, that's been sort of hidden all these years. Luckily, a gentleman called uh, Bob Gaines, Robert Gaines, wrote an article in 2017 explaining the whole thing. And I can send you the link to that. Bob Gaines is um, an expert in in um, you know disease uh, infections, etc. So once you know that it takes that long to bring a drug to market. When Pfizer say come along and say, you know, we're gonna bring this drug to market at full scale, inject the world globally in nine months, you have to fall off your seat and say, you've gotta be, you've gotta be kidding me. And, uh, you know, uh, instantly I and many others, I'm sure you, you, yourselves thought, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And now they're talking about bringing, you know, mRNA uh, injections for all sorts of indications to market in a hundred days. Well, you know, that's cloud cuckoo land. So I, I really, my role now is to educate people in what I what I know, and mm -hmm. I'm so glad for this platform because I think in the U.S. particularly is the biggest pharma market in the world. Yes. And it's also, it's got the most expensive drugs in the world. And those drugs are very expensive because of the patent laws and processes. And ultimately, you know, I talk about the need to change those patent laws based on understanding the balance of risk and reward, which is fair. At the moment, you can get a patent, you just sketch a molecule out and say, this is going to cure Alzheimer's. You've got your $60,000, whatever, to pay for the patent. You've got the patent, a patent, I should call it. And then they've yeah. got no idea at all if it's going to cure any sort of disease. It fails. And 96% of all drug development fails. Yeah. So, it, you know, so that's where we are at the moment. 
Yeah, and I've, I've been dabbling little notes here because you just are making me think of so many things. One, I believe the figure is somewhere around U.S. has about 5% of the population, but we use 70% of the drugs. So we have a very drugged society and we, we have one of the unhealthiest populations on the planet. Um, and then another thing, when you compare, yeah, it takes, it should take as long to develop a pharmaceutical product as it does to develop a new jet airliner, as you point out. But the problem with the major difference, one of the major differences is that when you have a prototype of an airplane that fails, you can't hide the failure, the plane crashes, or it never gets off the ground. But when your pharmaceutical product crashes, it crashes behind closed doors in a small clinical trial where they can hide the evidence or once they fraudulently get it out into the market or even not fraudulently, the injuries happening are one at a time scattered all over the place and they're not reported. Less than 1% of all drug adverse reactions are reported. It's not just vaccines who suffer from the low adverse event reporting rates. So, you know, where airplanes are kept very safe because every, every airplane failure is headline news, but every vaccine failure, every drug failure, every drug harm, you don't hear about it until like 50,000 people <laughs> um, are harmed. And then you might start hearing about it. And then it takes lawsuits and 20 some years or more to get them off the market. So, you know, people, individuals, consumers have got to be much more savvy and understanding what these products are. They're not magic elixirs. They're not magic pills. They are products grown in vats um, and have many stages. So could you help walk us through um, what you know about, say, how you begin to make an mRNA vaccine and the sort of players that are involved in the different stages? Yeah, just to, just to say there are there have been two types of, these are broadly DNA vaccines, and this has been on the whole website for 25 years, and it's only in the last couple of years that suddenly they've cracked, a claim they've cracked it, but they haven't really but there's um what they call varivectors uh vaccines which are vaccines that are delivered with a virus when a virus enters your body it replicates its own dna so if you can take a virus and replace its dna with corrected dna which is good for the patient when it goes into the body it replicates that dna and potentially it could help a patient with uh fight fight infection or whatever mRNA messenger, it's, it, it, they both work off um, cell lines. The starting tier is always cell lines, animal cells. Uh, the adenovirus ones were chimpanzee cells. Um, the, the, the mRNA, I'm not a scientist, but I, I just repeat what scientists tell me. Uh, I'm an engineer and, you know, I, I work on producing things to the right quality. Uh, so, you know, I, I have to understand the stages. So the first stage is to generate these cell lines, which you then use to build the product. Now, you've got to collect these cells, um, either from chimpanzees or from some other uh, E. coli or some other 
um, source of these uh, cell lines. And you're looking at donors, and when you've got donors, you have to be sure that those donors are legitimate and you have to validate the source of those donors and the source of the supply. And that takes time in itself. And, and that's just the starting point. That's called the starting material. So I, I just want to make sure that um, listeners understand. So when you're, you're going to be making a vaccine product and you have to start with a cell line and you need some live source of the, the material that's going to become the main component of that product. And you're either going to get it from an animal an animal cell line or a bacterial cell line or an insect cell line. So do are there big labs somewhere where they've got caged animals or a whole bunch of insects or vats of growing E. coli? I mean, is that literally what happens that they then take those materials and somehow extract what they need from that? Yeah, they've got networks of supply sources uh, and there's a lot of supply sources and there's always issues with validating the sources. And the, the real concern when you've got these injections being at warp speeds, people are less, they're less um, inclined to really check out the sources because they know they're under the gun for pressure. So, so but that's the first starting point. And they are sensitive to temperature. So typically they're, they're cryogenically frozen in what they call dry shippers. This is liquid nitrogen, 193 degrees, uh, minus 193 degrees centigrade. And they have to be transported like that. So that's the first issue. When they are transported to the next stage, which is making the drug substance, which is taking those cells and ex extracting the um the, the 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 DNA the spike protein DNA out of the cells to become a a bulk liquid that's held in a container, and to do that the the cells have to be thawed, and thawing in itself is a is a is a a, a, a sensitive operation because molecular changes can happen through a, a thawing process, and this has been a big issue with these injections all the way through particularly with a minus 70 degrees finished products. And I'll say a bit more about that later. We're not at that stage yet. Is, is, this, um, is this similar to like what we experience in our kitchen where we have some like beautiful kale and we then blanch it and it changes and then we freeze it and it changes and you take it out of the freezer after a while and you, try, and you unthaw it and it's nothing like the original product and it's kind of slimy and mushy, right? Is that yeah, what yeah. we're talking about that everything can change because of the freezing and thawing and refreezing and uh, thawing process? Yeah, and the quality system that these companies are supposed to be used, the quality management system, which involves standard operating procedures for operators who are doing these operations, they have to sign that they've been properly trained, they have to sign that they understand the SOP. If there, anything changes, they then have to be retrained in that. And again, time was so limited, this sort of work could not have been going on it, it could not have been and with bio, that's why biologics are so difficult to make because you're fighting against these changes all the time so you have to run studies so when you thaw something you 
you, you run a study, study that says it was at that temperature, we thought it down to that temperature. We started with that. We have to confirm the conditions at which we need to do to throw it under so that we assure we end up with the same molecule. So you have to tell people that like when the frozen vaccines went into the vaccination centers, they were just being thawed by people who had no idea what they were doing. Mm. You know, they didn't have any standard operating procedures. Uh, they had to thaw from minus 70 degrees or minus 20 degrees C with the Moderna and, and, and BioNTech vaccines. Uh, then they had to um, add saline diluent to a vial, the vial that had been thawed, that had five doses in it, not one dose, five doses. They had to then inject saline diluent and they had to turn the vial up and down 10 times to mix it up. Now, Bob knows when you mix, if you don't mix it properly, you can get um, non-homogeneous product, which means you might get a hot spot, you might get part of it that's got a lot more of the drug in it than other parts. And after that, after that mixing took place, then they had to extract five different dose, uh, five different injections from the vial. And again, who knows if they took the exact amount? We heard cases of some people who'd had the, the whole five doses injected into them because oh, someone didn't realize that you know it was five doses, and there was no instructions it was on the internet but it is unprecedented for any pharmaceutical product to go to a physician or pharmacy not in its finished form because all the finishing has to be done in manufacture because that's where the skills takes place that's where the quality system is so when you know in if you go into a pharmacy everything there has been supplied by the wholesaler, but they've just transported it from the manufacturer into the pharmacy. They're not allowed to change anything at all because that's not their skill set. Their skill set is making sure what they were given by the manufacturer is in the same condition when it gets to the pharmacy and the physician as it was when they received it. So they have to make sure it stays at the right temperature. They have to make sure that all the labeling is you know, is, is properly kept in place. So all through this, the checks and balances that normally are required to make sure that processes are safe and effective were not being, were just were not being carried out. And, and the best evidence of that is the frozen vaccines that were not finished. So, you know, in America, you have Amerisauce Bergen, you have Cardinal Health, you have McKesson, three major wholesalers who take these uh, finished pharmaceuticals to the pharmacies. They weren't involved in any of this. McKesson a little bit, but they couldn't be involved because they are not licensed to handle minus 70 or minus 20 degrees C products. So these vaccines, if you call them vaccines, bypass the whole trained wholesaler network and went direct to untrained people in vaccination centers who really didn't know what they were doing. One person I spoke to, um, in fact, I put this on my Substack, she said that um, she was outside her local Target's 
store and she saw a sign go up saying uh, biohazard and then the local fire service turned up with these frozen vaccines and they unloaded them and you know they set up the vaccination center and patients turned up and they vaccinated all these patients i mean you know it, it you couldn't make it up you know that's guaranteed to harm people and that's just a tip of the iceberg of what's going on here. Um, so you do the drug substance. Now, for Moderna, Lonza in Switzerland, the largest contract development and manufacturing organization in the world, made the Moderna drug substance, the mRNA drug, drug substance. They are a large company. They've been making biologics for many years, but they work on a fee-for-service basis. So they get their money whether the drug works or not. That's one of the that's one of the problems with the industry. Um, and the drug product, which is taking that uh, bug drug substance that is a big liquid, that's transferred to a company called Catalan Pharmas Solutions, the second biggest contract development organization in in the world. And both have been clients of mine in the past. Um, and they uh, then take the bulk liquid, uh, they fill it into vials, and they put a, a stopper in the top of each vial. They put an a, a aluminum a seal around it, and, and then they pack them up into 195 vials in a cardboard tray. And so they it, and this is this is all being done like in a frozen a facility where everything is being kept at well, low yeah, temperatures. Yeah, the product is coming in frozen. It's having to be thawed, processed, and then refrozen at the end of the process. And then it gets shipped frozen. And then the next stage it has to be thawed again. You know, you couldn't pick a much more <laughs> risky way of of doing things. Than, than this. And Catlin Pharma Solutions in Bloomington had an inspection from FDA. It's on Fierce Pharma, a well-known industry journal, Fierce Pharma. If you, if you go into manufacturing, you'll find the Catlin Pharma Solutions Bloomington site in there. And it had an inspection from FDA related to the, boost, the Moderna boosters and they found so many non-compliances. I was shocked that the plant wasn't just closed down instantly, or at least mm -hmm. stopped manufacturing and a remediation plan put in place. Uh, so the FDA have been into a few sites. They've been into a company called Rentschler in Germany, who make the Pfizer drug substance. And that again was an inspection where FDA really identified numbers of non-compliances and lack of control. When FDA do an inspection, the issue was known as a, a form 483. And the inspectors list the observations that they've found while they've been there. Now, they were physically in these, these plants, which is excellent, because most of the inspections have just been virtual inspections, which is just about useless. Um, so, but so those inspections found those companies to be um, uh, delinquent on their processes of manufacture, and still they were allowed to go on manufacturing. 
Now, I don't know why that, that is, because the higher-ups in FDA should have acted on, on, on those inspections. Um, again, I can show you the links to those inspections. They're mm -hmm. on my sense okay. and um, it's very clear. Were all of the vaccines that we had distributed here in the U.S., were these precursors all made in Europe, you're saying? Uh, no, but Catlin Pharma Solutions is in in Bloomington, so they were the, the the they were made in Bloomington and shipped into Europe. We know the first Pfizer injections were made at uh, Wyeth Pharma Biopharma in Andover, and we know the first. And I've looked at that site, and it's a research and development site. It's not a commercial site that can make to a good current good uh, manufacturing practice it just is not they claim it does but if you look at the website um you know you can see the skills aren't there but they made the first 33 batch lots of the biontech pfizer vaccine and those lots are the ones that showed up as being quite highly toxic and, mm. and we've seen articles in the bnj and sashlatipova other people have brought those to light so I, they were called emergency batches, and we now know this was not an emergency. And um, subsequently, some other plants have come on board, as I say, Rensler to make the the, the BioNTech um, uh, drug substance. But none of these companies are able to work to proper good manufacturing practice. I... So there was a lot of news about the cold chain. That was some concern even in the mainstream media as the operation warp speed unfolded over here and so yeah the cold chain was one of those worries and of course they the talking heads would pan it and say we've got it under control yeah again if people understand about the uh, uh, the cold chain these vaccines have to be packed into i mean one of my clients was actually making these these containers that can hold two pallet loads of vaccines and the containers are packed with dry ice which takes so that they get the temperature down to minus 70 so you know a pallet you, you know you look at a warehouse you see a pallet of stock you put two of those in there you stuff it full of dry ice you close it up you then got to put temperature data loggers inside the container to to monitor the temperature all through the journey and it can take three to five days on this journey so and when it's finished the journey you have to download the data logger and you have to make sure that there were no excursions for the minus 70 uh, between minus 90 and minus 70 so it has to be on average minus 80 and for the moderna vaccines it would have been minus 20 and if you do find an excursion that product has to be investigated. And if there's no explanation, it has to just be thrown away because once it goes outside of that temperature, you can't guarantee that it's not adulterated. So the cold chain is absolutely crucial because of the sensitivity of these products to temperature and the environment. Small, what they call small molecule products, which are products made by chemical synthesis, like aspirin, if they're kept at you know, room temperature, they're fine for three to five years. Um, but these biologics, some of the shelf lives are down to weeks and months. 
and that's that's when they kept at the right temperatures so there's huge issues with the cold chain and to just say oh that was fine you know that is absolutely not not true yeah not right. it sounds difficult and that brings to mind and sorry bernadette but another question one that's really been kind of bothering me over time statistics that come out of our cdc on doses distributed doses distributed whether it's been the childhood vaccine program or the covid vaccines and they they claim success you know we've got so, so many vaccines distributed the injury rates and the vares reports are so low as a percentage of the dosage distributed what's the waste factor how many of the vials actually go half used unused is there a way to accurately measure by this time you've got all this scrap and and waste by the time you get to the doctor's office do you have as an industry expert any estimates on that it's, it's got to be high because principally if it's in the manufacturing environment you know, the yield is carefully controlled so your wastages are down to one to three percent you know people are keeping an eye on that all the time but my knowledge of what was happening in the vaccination centers was you know people just weren't sure what they should be doing they weren't sure if they were doing things right the the whole inventory control when you relabel something you then have to re-identify it give it a different number the, you know the whole process of keeping inventory um in the right condition so that it's not wasted really i don't think was, was there so i think people you would expect people would have would have um, just <laughs> pushed these lots out of, uh, out of the way because they didn't quite know what to do because the processes weren't outlined on what what they should do when they found something unusual and there will have been a, you know a lot of unusual things going on because it's not just good manufacturing practice it's good distribution practice as well so when those vaccination centers were receiving those those uh, those lots of uh, injections, they should have been um, uh, checking the bona fides of the source that you know the, that they, they came from a legitimate source. That's part of good distribution practice. They should have been licensed so that they could handle the vaccines. They had the skilled people to handle the vaccines, the people who could carry out the inventory control. You know, when the vaccines come in, you should record all the lot numbers. You should record the the source, the supplier, and a whole list of information, and you should have that on file, so that you know if anything goes wrong, you can trace back to where it came from, or if it's gone somewhere else, you can trace to where it's gone to. None of that would have been happening because these people would not have had the skills, or the training, or the experience. Yeah, it it's very concerning. Um, one of the things that you mentioned before we went on air kind of explains maybe a little bit of of how this happened. Now, here in the States, we've been some amazing people have been going down the rabbit hole and, and doing FOIAs, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, and getting documents that clearly show that the COVID vaccine, I do my air quote, um, 
everything about it, it has been done under the Department of Defense. It, it has been done as an experiment. Um, the word not experiment. Um, demonstration. Demonstration. Thank you. And there was it was more of a pretending that this is Pfizer's doing this, Moderna's doing this, but it was really everything under direction of Department of Defense um, doling things out. And of course, Pfizer wasn't making things and Moderna wasn't making things. It was all their subcontractors. And I don't know, the whole thing is just so tangled when you look closely at it. And we've been hearing about um, good manufacturing processes not being followed and now good distribution practices not being followed. And how did this happen when we have, well, we don't have great regulations in the US regarding vaccine products, but even those were not being respected. Everything was like a dog and pony show. Let's just pretend. So how did this happen with all the systemic people in place? Why weren't people going, wait, wait, wait a minute, we didn't do this or we didn't do that, or I have concerns here. You mentioned that in UK, Bill Gates came in to the UK several years ago and set up what you were calling a duplicate um, agency. Can you explain that? Yeah, this is a crucial point. Um, Bill Gates uh, now has working for him a gentleman called Dr. Ian Hudson, who was the chief executive officer of the UK's MHRA up until 2019. And then he went to work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But in 2016, he set up and was the first chair of the International Coalition for Medicines Regulatory Affairs. Now, this is an unelected body. Its, its membership includes all the regulatory bodies around the world, FDA, European Medicines Agency, and Visa in Brazil, uh, MHRA. And in my opinion, they have hollowed out the official regulatory bodies and with the various meetings they have every year and this came from the world uh, health organization the the, the the idea behind this body came out in 2012 and if you look at the website the international coalition uh, for medicines regulatory authorities uh, icmra if you google if you do a search on that you will see it. You'll see the first chair was Dr. Ian Hudson. The second chair was the head of the European Medicines Agency. And the current head is the current head of the European Medicines Agency, Miss Emma Cook. Now, if that's not a conflict of interest, nothing is. So, and she is holding meetings. That, that, that's it, yeah. And if, if you look at About Us and look at chair, Go, go to ICMRA chair. If you just go down there, you'll see um, the two, the, Ian Hudson there, then the, and then you see at the top that the current one is Emma Cook. Now, you know, this is um, a duplicate organization, and I don't know what role they've got because. Regulations has been harmonized in the industry for the last 30 years. You know, FDA, they've all been speaking to each other. You've got the International Conference of Harmonization of Technical Requirements of Pharmaceuticals have harmonized the regulations. We don't need this body. And yet they have in week, monthly meetings 
and they seem to be, you know, making this a bit like the WHO again, unelected, making up all these. When I say the WHO, I mean the World Health Organization, mm -hmm. making up all these um, different uh, uh, announcements, and it it shouldn't be holding any, any weight in the U.S. FDA. And Dr. Peter Marks is the head of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. And he is the person responsible for the approval of these vaccines. And mm. he is also going around the world, speaking to conferences on mRNA products, future, they call advanced therapies. He's, he's speaking at conferences, pushing, I would say pushing, mRNA vaccines for any indication you can think of. Mm -hmm. I don't know why he would be doing that because he should be, you know, making sure that good good manufacturing practice is in place and making sure that patients are kept safe. And you know, I, I put those links to those um, those things on my Substack. It's all mm -hmm. there and it's all evidence. And I'm just hoping that you know, with platforms like this, people would begin to understand that there's a lot more to this than just throwing a switch. Um, mm -hmm. So just go back to Bill Gates. So, but also GlaxoSmithKline, the former chief executive officer of GlaxoSmithKline, Sir, Sir Richard Sykes, was uh, the CEO of, of uh, uh, was the head of the vaccine task force in the UK. And Sir Ian McCubbin was his head of supply chain, Ian McCubbin was the person who set up the supply chain for all these vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna and the AstraZeneca. And um, uh, so there's this link between the UK, GSK was the biggest pharma company in the world. It's now down to number nine. And all these big pharma companies have been collaborating together to try and, you know, get back to the blockbuster revenues that investors have been used to, but they've outsourced so much of the development capability, they cannot bring new products to market anymore. They've had to use contractors to bring these vaccines to market. Now they're pumping the gene therapies, but you cannot make gene therapies. It's not possible. With the current state of them being experimental, they haven't been properly tested. Mm -hmm. The manufacturing process is extremely complex. Um, so it's, you know, it's basically a scam when they say these are the next generation of medicines that is going to change the world. Yeah. And when you look into it, the practicalities of it is quite easy to prove. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree and you know I, I my listeners have heard me say this many times before i'm a former grocery checker mystery author what do i know right i know how to read i knew how know how to do research you know um because i know how to go to pubmed i know how to go to all of the sources um and even back when i lived in washington state because i have a lifetime like uw library card i could go in in person and look through all the journals and everything i know how to do my homework and even I, with no PhD, no MD, before the shots came out, I went and looked up what is the current science on the use of lipid nanoparticles in injected medicines. And all of the science up until the 
day the shots came out said, well, we really hope we can improve this. It looks like a great vehicle. However, these adverse events until we can figure out how not to have such a high rate of adverse events, right? And you look at every bit of it. It was also experimental. All of it already so dangerous. Every single component um, was already known to come with its own risks. Um, and then you put them all together in this experimental state. It just, it was absurd to me. It was absurd to me that anybody in the medical community um, actually shut off their brain and just said, oh, they must be safe and effective. I mean, what the, the psychological manipulation that have gotten our medical community to just blithely trust something, you know, it's just insane to me, but hopefully COVID woke people up and. You know, I, I but the Gates money, I mean, if you look at the way he's incentivized all, all these, you know, key players in the whole thing, physicians, um, you, you know, John Hopkins, Imperial College, London and Ferguson again, we keep coming back to London and the UK because Ferguson's in the UK, uh, Chris Whitty's in the UK, Patrick Valens is in the UK. Bill Gates is on first name terms, speed dial terms with all the cabinet in the UK. And he's frequently having calls with them. They believe everything he says. And the UK wants to be number one in the world for life sciences. And they have been working on this since 2001. They've had uh, been having meetings with Big Pharma. This is Sir Richard Sykes and the CEO of uh, AstraZeneca since 2001. And again, that's on my Substack. You can see it. And um, the chair has been the CEO of AstraZeneca for, for 20 years with ministers, UK government ministers, uh, high power people as part of it. It's called the ministerial bracket biopharmaceutical industry strategy group and this is the epicenter of the whole thing a uk government is believing it's believing its own pr it's believing yeah. that, that yeah. things actually work and yeah. we know matt hancock in the uk he bought the vaccines he pushed the whole thing forward so you know uh, and we just need to dig into that yeah. and join the dots up because the dots are starting to join themselves up i think and with platforms like this people are going to be able to join them up even more quickly and effectively well you know you said something that that you know the uk wants to be the dominant voice the leader of life sciences well i got something to tell them there is already somebody, the head of life sciences, who will never be toppled, and his name is God. So you, you know, or Mother Nature, or you know, whatever you, whatever your belief system, there's a brilliant higher power that already has got what health and life need to thrive. It's not brewed in a vat somewhere, doesn't need to be kept at minus 70 as it gets shipped across the world, doesn't have to be given a liability shield so nobody sues them. We know how to be healthy. We know how to avoid illness. It's about individual susceptibility and it's about uh, utilizing 
what nature God has given us in the land, how to farm properly. You know, there's just, we know what to do, but that doesn't make them money. And you, we can really clearly see that in this weird war we are in with the globalists wanting to take over, we're really cash machines to them. We're just cash machines. And, and if they can get, they get the pharmaceutical companies as their tool, like they, they keep us unhealthy and keep us slaves to fear and to their products and being tracked by the use of their products. Everybody knows where we are, the whole thing. The pharmaceutical companies are a useful tool for global dominance and they make a lot of money. So of course they're going along. None of it has to do with health. None of it has to do with health. If we had spent all those billions of dollars that they spent on these, these dangerous injections on simply making sure everybody on the planet had access to clean water and like sanitation, flushable toilet. Think of how much healthier the world would be today with, with just that. We would have had money to spare when you think about how much money has been wasted. But I digress and we're getting close to, we've got like about five more minutes. Um, Headley, what else have we not covered in the last five minutes? What else is really important do you think for listeners to know? about this especially the listeners in seattle this is a propitious audience on the radio because that's yeah. <laughs> yes well what what i would say is that well the first thing is i always start with this is to re repeat what you just said <clears throat> is that vaccines or medicinal products are, are, are manufactured like any other product and you need the processes and We've got this myth that suddenly medicines are discovered by accident. So they they hop onto the pharmacy shelf in a couple of weeks and you know they just keep hopping on until you and you can pick them off like off, off the tree. And once you start thinking like that, once you start thinking, okay, <coughs> you know, how did they how did they source the um the cell line so quickly then? Because they've got to be grown and all this sort of stuff. So and then you start asking questions. And you know, it all builds from from, from that. Um, if you understand, you don't even have to understand supply chain. I think the, the, what you said, Bernadette, was about the, the cooking example. Yeah, that's you know, if you thought something, you pull some out the freezer. It tasted nice when you put it in. You pull it out, you thaw it, and it's not the same. You know, it's it's changed, <clears throat> and just that sort of thing. Uh, so. People have to, you know, think critically and the propaganda has won, so far, the propaganda has won the battle. You know, MSM, mm. uh, big tech, big, uh, big everything, World Economic Forum, they've been winning the battle, but I think they're on the back foot now and it's all coming out. Now Elon Musk has made Twitter a lot more honest and open and what Robert Kennedy Jr. By the way, Robert Kennedy Jr. kindly took out a subscription to my Substack in, in October. So yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that he didn't comment, but uh, I'm hoping he takes notice of, uh, of, of, of the post. Um, so there are real shining lights coming through where, as I say, people like Robert Kennedy Jr. is actually 
speaking the truth about vaccines. He's saying things. And now people are talking about do vaccine cause autism. Well, I, I, I was kicked off LinkedIn in mid-2021 because they didn't want me saying this other stuff on LinkedIn. And just before I was kicked off, there was a gentleman I was connected with, a research scientist. He said he'd worked out that 3% of children that have uh, the MMR vaccine get autism. And he suddenly disappeared off LinkedIn. Luckily, he's still going. But And he was working on a test to identify those children who would be susceptible, who would likely to be uh, affected by the vaccine to get autism. So, and this is what we need. We, we need much more emphasis on diagnosis, proper diagnosis of yes. conditions before we give people medicinal solutions that probably are not right for them. You know, we put in resources in the wrong area. Prevention and diagnosis are far more important initially than any any therapy because we know, you know, in terms of number needed to treat, sometimes mm -hmm. to treat five people with a medicine for to do any mm -hmm. good for one person, and that is considered a good medicine. So, and yeah. again, we're not really talking about those things. Well, Headley Reese, you are a gem. I'm so glad that we got hooked up by this awesome woman named Lori. Hey, Lori, thank you for sending me uh, Headley Reese. You overdue. Can find yeah, overdue. It's it's a. I can't believe it's been two years since you wrote your book. We really yeah. need this information. We need to find it. Yeah. So you can find them at headleyreese.substack.com. Um, I guess we need to go to break. There's the music. So Headley, you take care of yourself. Keep writing. Um, and yeah. we'll keep sharing your information. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back in a few minutes. Okay. Thank you. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. 
Hello and welcome back to the second hour of an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. Glad to have Bob Ronalds with me on this second hour. Let me see if I can pull him in. Oops. I think me and Nathan were doing dueling clicking. Bob, I've, I've got controls back here. Nathan has entrusted me a little bit with the controls, but I'm, I'm not an expert at them. I, I only use them a little bit. So <laughs> that sounds like trouble, Bernadette, but thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I was so glad to have you here. Um, so before we be, get going on the part that I want to talk about, um, going over the NFID, the National Federation of Infectious Diseases webinar on adult vaccine hesitancy. Um, you had something you wanted to bring up and I've gone blank on it. Do you recall you wanted to talk about what, what was it opting out of the IIS? Is that something? Yeah, I think that's something that's come up recently. A few families have asked on our other social media channels to be reminded of, do I have to be in the Washington's immunization information system, the IIS? Mm -hmm. And there is a webpage on the DOH site, the Department of Health site that does go through some instructions. Okay. There's there's more to it than what's on the website though. So I'm happy to talk about that at the right time. Okay. Well, do you want to talk about that now or do you want to come on and again at another time with the presentation where we have links and such? Or do you have that information um, that we could share today? I didn't come 100% prepared. No, that's okay. I'm just throwing it at you. So, but let's just put it out there as a I teaser. Easily look up the website. There's really only one thing to do is look up the website. So I can okay. do that today. Okay, very cool. So um, I'm going to go ahead then and and get started on what I want us to to discuss. And we can't go over everything here because it was an hour long presentation and I could spend six hours on every point that these people made, but I won't. So I'm going to be pulling up. uh, Here we go. And pull it in here. Let's see how this works. So this is their uh, slides. Now I do have the video, but we're just going to go ahead and, and look at their slides, look at who these people are. And I will be providing for those of you who subscribe to our Substack, Informed Choice Washington Substack, uh, our wonderful Gerald who writes our weekly newsletter, he'll be including links and I'll make sure that he has the link to all of these slides that we'll be showing here. <clears throat> today. And, and also some of the information that I have um, gathered to help you explore more. Like I've got some links to uh, where you can explore who William Schaffner is, uh, Ruth Carrico, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Rupali LeMay, LeMay I, I apologize, I'm not good at, at the names, but more information about who these individuals are. They adore vaccines. I don't think they've ever met a vaccine that they they didn't love. Um, So I'm going to go on down to, it was interesting, Bob, the disclosures. So Ruth uh, disclosed that she's an advisor or consultant for Moderna, Novavax, Pfizer, Sanofi, Sequeris, and Velniva, and was also a researcher for Janssen. That's not a conflict, right? No, no, no. And then Marla Dalton. is uh, has owned stock from Merck is all that um, she has said. But the um, 
what's his, uh, the original guy here. I'll go ahead and um, now I'll do that. I'll go back and do it later for lack of time. But William Schaffner has been, he's like 80, I think. He is been in this a very long time along with Fauci and everybody else. And he's in Nashville, Tennessee. He's at Vanderbilt where a lot of the NFID, I believe, is headquartered. Um, so about NFID, I wanted to point out that their vision, healthier lives for all through effective prevention and treatment of infectious disease. But honestly, I've never heard them discuss anything but vaccines, um, you know, and not vitamin D versus vaccination or, you know, uh, early treatment and superior lifetime immunity versus this vaccine product. Right. It's just they've never met a vaccine they didn't like. There was a video, Bob, that they showed that just said, you know, you brush your teeth, you wash your hands, you get a vaccine from the time you're born until you, you die. It's just basically part of a lifetime health habit to get injected with a pharmaceutical product. You know, and why I say it that way, Bob, is because we really need um we need to change the mindset here. They're working very hard to maintain a mindset that vaccines are the norm, and they do say that later on, and your default choice. And they they really don't want you to think of not vaccinating as, as even an option. So the first thing that though, and this is really aimed at hesitancy in adults. So the first one that they looked at was vitamin B, or vitamin B, hello, hepatitis B. But and they let's, showed- let's, let's remind people of- where hep B is in the schedule for children. Yes. Hepatitis B vaccine at this stage and has been for a couple of decades now is the day of birth. Within hours of being born, you are injected with a hepatitis B vaccine that contains at least 250 micrograms of an aluminum adjuvant for a disease that is primarily spread through sex and illicit drugs. So it's for on the day of birth, it is literally for like 99.999% of babies born, 100% risk and zero benefit. And part of that zero benefit is not only is that child currently not at risk and won't be for many, many years to come, and maybe never depending on how they live their life. uh, But because on the day of birth, in the first few months of life, Bob, you babies cannot mount proper antibody response. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So as we're looking at this map of the world, you can clearly see that the United States, most of many parts of the world, the developed world, the um, hepatitis rates are uh, less than, equal to or less than 1.9%, so very low. Um, very low rates. And then we we see a graph here where they show zero to 19 years is right here on the bottom. You see in 2004 how low it was. And then it goes down to like flat lines is what they're showing. Now I'm going to stop sharing that um, so I can catch up. I was I tried to intersperse my slides bob but it didn't work because their slides and mine were a different size so 
<laughs> so here's our here's a rebuttal. So and then I've got these links to it. So I'll show you real quick a little bit about William Schaffner. So I'm going to his the web page at the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases. I might have said the name of that group incorrectly at the beginning. I apologize. There he is getting a shot. Um, so he's been around a very, very long time. Um, areas of expertise, adult immunizations, COVID-19, hepatitis B, flu. Uh, yeah. So if anybody wants to go explore, he's very influential, continues to be like a Fauci, very influential in, um, in the world of vaccines. So that, right. Often quoted by mainstream media sources for yes. the latest narrative takes on. Yeah. On. Exactly. I always get him confused with William Shatner when I see that reference. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> I'd rather have Captain Kirk at the helm. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, oh, I know what I need to do. I kind of, let's see. I lost my there we go. I lost my thingy. I have to get it back again. I'm not, I'm not fast at this. I probably need to take a class at Bob and how to do this. You have a lot of screens up probably, but yeah. you're not sharing right now. Am I sharing now? No. Okay. Let me go to here and here and there we go. Am I here? Yes. Yay. Okay. Right. So anyway, so in the video, um, the presenter said, quote, when we think about infectious diseases around the world, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. So what goes on anywhere in the world has relevance to us everywhere in the world. And this this is what they've been trying to preach. You don't get vaccinated for yourself. You do it for other people. Right. Um, but does this even make sense, especially in the context of hepatitis B? So how can a vaccinated person, let's say a newborn in Seattle, how can that person prevent a drug addict or sex worker from spreading hepatitis B in Thailand? I mean, this does not make any sense, Bob. Would you agree? Well, it's got my attention if they have an answer for it. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They don't. It's just that everybody get vaccinated no, no matter where you are in the world or happen to be, you know, the, the risk benefit analysis is so absurd. They just kind of figure that, you know, everybody at some chance i mean some time might be it doesn't matter if it's a point zero 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 one chance of even being exposed they don't care so um, they pose that they pose that question as rhetoric like the the obvious answer is yes you can get uh get the vaccine in seattle and it helps somebody well no i i ask the question um and because they're saying that you're your brother's keeper so wherever you are in the world, even in a place where mm. there's not a lot of hepatitis B, even if oh, your mother doesn't yeah. have it, right? Oh, that, you, that's you the question I would beg. Okay, I got yeah, you. yeah, yeah. I didn't make that very clear. So th there is a new hepatitis B vaccine. They're still using the old, but there's a new one, relatively new. It's only licensed for adults, but it's not prevented from being given to children. Um, so in the presentation, Bob, they said that 68, there's a 68% drop in hepatitis B infection in children and they credit it to vaccination. But 
the rates were so very, very low to begin with in young children. Right, and about right. the time they're trying to push this vaccine on newborns, they're also beginning to screen all pregnant mothers. So, you know, it the, it becomes very disingenuous when they show this, they say 68% drop of something that was already extremely low. And then they don't talk about um, the fact that now they're screening and and who really is at risk. So it's it's all the information out there is just to sound impressive and to confuse about anybody any one person's individual risk, um, either from the product or from the infection they're exposing. And because all mothers in the United States are tested for hepatitis B before they give birth. Um, Virtually all the other 4 million infants in the United States um, will get zero benefit from getting that shot on the day of birth or at two months. They get it again at, at two months, four months, um, or is it four months, six months? You get three altogether. Um, I believe on this schedule, I believe it's a total of three. And then what I wanted to show you, do I not have it? Shoot. I think it's on my other computer. I meant to show you, um, Bob, um, let me stop sharing for a second and talk to you about this because it's really important. And I apologize, I don't have it. I wanted to show you the vaccine insert for um, the hepatitis B vaccine that is currently being given to infants. Because when you look at the clinical trials, you will see a certain amount of antibody response when they give it at zero, two months and four months or zero, two months, six months. And you will see they, they only, they check one month after the third dose to see how much the, um, the titer response, the antibody response. They're not checking after the first one because there's almost no response. And they're not checking after the second one because there's almost no response. And when you they look after the four month, um, I forget what the numbers are and I wish I had had it because I had highlighted it and forgot to put it on this computer. Um, although I can think I can pull it up and read you the numbers. Maybe I can, maybe I can do that. I'll do that in a second. Um, but the later you wait to vaccinate, the greater the immune response. Those first shots have been shown in animal studies. When you go read veterinary medicine, they tell veterinarians and farmers don't vaccinate young animals. Why? Because it doesn't take, because their immune systems are too immature to mount a proper lasting immune response. So it's not until at least that six month dose that they begin to get any sort of response. So they're continuing to expose these children already not risk of the disease to increase risk um, from, um, from the shot. And, and hepatitis B shots have aluminum adjuvant. And now after decades of refusing to do it, CDC has done at least one study looking at the correlation between exposure to aluminum adjuvants and chronic childhood illness. And lo and behold, CDC has found that for every 1,000 micrograms of aluminum an infant is exposed to, their risk of persistent asthma increases. I think it's between 17 and 38%. 
it's that's so appalling. That's significant. That's, that's significant. And that's just one of the reported adverse events from getting that shot at birth. You're hearing none of this from this NFID presentation. They're mm -hmm. not talking about anybody with any adverse reactions, none of that. Um, very frustrating. I was able to dig up to compare with theirs, um, like the different rates, but um, it's not gonna work for purposes of discussion here to go down that quite that rabbit hole. So Bob, the next thing that they then talked about was the, the flu vaccine and saying how everybody needs to get the flu vaccine saying, oh yeah, there's variability and protection, but still get it anyway. Um, you know, they failed to point out that flu case numbers are extremely exaggerated by the CDC. They call something the flu, but what they bulk together are actual confirmed influenza cases, which are very few each year. Anything called ILI, influenza-like illness, right. and pneumonia. That's what gives you the huge number. Um, I encourage people to go to our website, informedchoicewa.org, all flu news, and we've got some really good information. In fact, there's a um, an investigative piece right at the top from Jeremy Hammond, who went down the rabbit hole on the history of the flu vaccine and how it's developed and and efficacy and harm and the whole bit. It's just, it's fantastic. There's a link to that. And then all the studies through the years, um, quite a bit of information on our website there on the all flu news page. Um, and then what I learned, Bob, had you ever heard of warm manufacturing before? War manufacturing. Warm with an M. At first warm I thought he was talking about, yeah. I thought we were talking about the Department of Defense uh, getting involved in the COVID distributions. And yeah, stuff. no, it's, yeah, it's called warm. warm. Oh, oh, warm manufacturing. I think that how it would have to do with how you keep your supply chain alive. Bingo. Okay. Yeah. Similar yeah. to what we were talking about in the previous hour. Yes. Was you need a warm manufacturing line in order to, uh, respond to anything that might be new and you just right. can't turn it off or you're going to lose all of your uh, biologics that are roasting in the vats. Yeah. So apparently it is known well within the world of vaccinology and the researchers and everything that really flu vaccines are rather useless. And we know that. And um, I, I, be I believe they're worse than useless because of the harm that they can do. And let's see a side by side comparison with vitamin D and uh, you know some of the good, wonderful nasal sprays that are out there, and good lifestyle and all that um, negative ef efficacy many years. But anyway, they I guess it's well known that you you keep pushing these products because you need to be able to keep in times of pandemic manufacturing of pandemic vaccines available. So you need to keep these people in business and the manufacturing plants open. In or um, so that's what's called warm manufacturing. You know, you keep something going so that at wartime or epidemic time, it can be taken over. And Robert Malone was the first one uh, to talk about it recently that introduced the idea to me. But apparently it's not new. It's been known for a long time. And then I found this, um, and again, we'll have it on our Substack. Um, that the EU is going to do their own uh ever warm, they're calling it, ever warm vaccine drug production capacity to be prepared for future pandemics. 
So, you know, this is really going to be. Uh, Boy, that plays so nicely, Bernadette, yeah. with mandates, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Gee, I'm sorry. I'm you... using a lot of sarcasm on the radio show. I think it's not great for people who might just be tuning in. Yeah, no, that's okay. And you know what? I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to pick another, I'm going to go back over to to theirs real quick. I'm going to, where is it? Um, is it here? In, uh, I think there we go. Okay. Share. Let's go back to NFID. There we go. Okay. So we're going to go back in here. They do some, you know, they do these little case studies. We don't have time to go through that. We won't, but they give the epidemiology of hepatitis. I mean, they just push it. It's, it's recommended at all age. Cracks me up when they do this. Who is recommended to get a hepatitis B vaccine? All infants, persons aged under 19, adults aged 19 to 59, adults greater than 60. I mean, just basically say everybody. Pre-cradle, not pre-cradle, so far they're not giving it to, um, to pregnant women. Um, so there we go. Um, Four different products. All the different products and, you Four know, or five. Five, so five companies yeah. have basically approved Hep B and, and HepoSav is the new one. And because they are recommended to children, they're under the 1986 Act, the, you know, protection, you cannot sue the vaccine maker, vaccine maker uh, for- Can I ask, can I ask <clears throat> a question then? Yeah. So <clears throat> back in the previous slide, you talk about the five products. Yeah. And the first one, I think HepoSav is the new one, it looks like for yeah. but it it looks like it's only approved for people greater than 18 years of age. Yes, that so is that's true. So not, that's not a child. Is that Heplosav covered under the vaccine injury program? Um, it's my understanding. I, I, that's a good question. I'll have to double check. It's my understanding that once a disease, a product for a disease is put under the umbrella. Once hepatitis vaccines are put under any, um, the 1986 Act umbrella, any future products that become licensed to go under there. Um, they get kind of slid in yeah, under the umbrella. Like, they, like they do. They probably I'm, have new formulations every year for the flu shot and it just fits into the vaccine injury program. Right. But because it is just licensed for over 18, um, I'd have to, I'd have to double check that my understanding is correct on that. Well, certainly um, not unprecedented because now the vaccine injury program is no longer just the childhood vaccine no. program because it covers flu shots in general. Yeah. Right. So then they move on to the, to the flu. And then later I'll go back to my rebuttal slide to show you. And they do some case studies. And, you know, we, like we just talked about with the flu, it's warm manufacturing. Go to our website and you can find that that link on all uh, flu and just go down the rabbit hole and you will see. Then they talk about vaccine efficacy. I'm going to keep scrolling and they give the numbers and then they're woeful. They're very sad about um, the uptake rates. They want everybody to get these um, flu shots. Um, and then we go on to the pneumococcal disease. Um, and I'll be talking more about that. It's recommended to the very young and then um, older and in the middle years, those who are considered at risk of pneumococcal disease, which can lead to pneumonia. 
Um, they're very disappointed again at the rates of uptake that are low. They're really pushing. Now, here we are seeing, Bob, um, it's very complex because we've got PCV, PPSV23, PCV13, PCV13, and PPS. It's very complicated. There's several products and you've got to know what they've had before and, you know, to decide what you can give them later. They spent hours trying to sort this out at ASIP. It was sort of ridiculous. They've created an app now that the doctors can download to their phone where they can just put in information on the patient and the app will tell them what vaccine that, to give them. Right. And, and back to what our previous uh, Headley Reese had talked about, you know, mm -hmm. you're to fairly untrained providers with different colored vials. Yes. And they have to either mix or unmix or it's cold or it needs to be warmed and yeah. anything before you actually. And so that that complication, you just saw another level of complication with that list. Yes, many, some vaccines arrive that are pre-mixed and don't need to be, and others arrive needing to be mixed. There are so many stages along the way that even if vaccines were 100% were safe and effective, which we know they are not, but even if they were, all the mistakes that can happen from the manufacturing to delivery process, we would expect <laughs> quite a few yeah, quite a few uh, stories. injuries because we know quite of, a few people who are yeah. recipients of multiple vaccines same day with yeah. double, triple dosage. Yeah. Um, in the essence of saving time, I'm going to move on and then I'm going to back up a bit with my rebuttal on some of these things. So then they go into the Tdap and you will recognize here, Bob, you know, how they're it's birth to death, basically. Um, we now are giving, I believe, um, five Tdap to children and um, then one Dtap in the seventh grade. So a total of six shots by the time a child is in the seventh grade that has diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. They want to give it to every single pregnant woman in every single pregnancy. So how many might, they, if you have four children, you're up to 10 doses. Um, and then for adults, you know, just make sure everybody's got it. And then of course they're still doing, um, okay, so let's look at this, Bob. So they say that about a thousand infants are hospitalized and typically between five to 10, five to 15 infants die each year in the U.S. due to pertussis. Now, my heart breaks for anybody who loses a child. I don't want anybody to die from pertussis. But five to 15 out of four million birth cohort is a very, very small number. And um, it has been small for a very, very long time. Is there nothing that we can do to save those five without exposing the four million um, to so many, like, because she's talking about in the presentation about giving this during pregnancy, you know, all of those babies in utero, 250 micrograms of aluminum that does cross the placental barrier. What are the long-term health outcomes? Well, they haven't done the studies, so we don't know. Well, still the, the phrase is always thrown around the numbers thrown around, you know, rare, rare side effects, rare injuries, one in a million, mm -hmm. one in a million. Well, you inject 4 million people, 4 million young, young children with this, and you have one per million. That's basically negating the entire benefit they're claiming. 
of right. about five to 15 deaths. Well, they're, they want every ba baby exposed in utero. And then at two months and four months and six months and just before kindergarten or kindergarten age. And then again, um, about seventh grade. And then for every woman with every single pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And then for anybody with a cut, they give it to you because that's how they give the tetanus. You go to the hospital with a cut or a head wound or anything or your body's cracked open somewhere, they want to give you a tetanus shot, which is not a tetanus shot, but it's a Tdap. So people are getting hyper immunized. And I'm going to be going over that here in a second. Um, let's see, I just want to, uh, okay, then we're going to go on to pivoting. So I'm going to go ahead and, and, and share my uh, rebuttal um, again to cover some important, you can see why it took me like six hours today. And I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get it all. So when it comes to the pneumococcal vaccine, it's really whack-a-mole. They started with a pneumococcal, it's a bacteria and bacteria mutate so quickly. You know, they want to survive. If you whack down one strain, another one comes up to dominate within years, just so quickly. They started with, I forget what the original PCV was, but then they got to PCV 13. But this is currently on the CDC website about these pneumococcal vaccines. And it says, how well do these vaccines work? And their summary says the PCV15 and the PCV20 are new vaccines. So there are no data on how well these vaccines work in real world conditions. However, these vaccines were approved because clinical trial data indicate they cause an immune response similar to PCV13, which has been shown to protect against serious pneumococcal infections. Now, do, they don't haven't been proven to prevent infection. They're just claiming they like reduce um, the number of serious infections, you know, but they have to keep upping the number. So I went and looked up from the wonderful ICanDecide.org, um, the white paper that they have in their debate with the National Institute of Health and the FDA. And so here's Prevnar 13, the pneumococcal vaccine, it had no placebo control. Were you sharing would, that? Oh, am I sharing it? I was asking if you wanted to. Oh, I meant to be. There we go. Um, there was no placebo control. So it was tested against Prevnar. And if we were to go look at Prevnar, it's not on here. Um, it would say no placebo control. So we got Turtles All the Way Down, which is a wonderful book. <laughs> that you can buy that gives you the clinical trials on which all of these things were based. Um, and yeah. It's so, called, it's called bootstrapping also. That's another like, name for it. Doesn't quite work. Doesn't quite work. Yeah. So are you seeing the Tdap here? Yes. So when you talk about this Tdap vaccine, the reason they give so many is because the pertussis portion, the acellular pertussis vaccine has been found to not work. Um, it wanes very quickly. It's not really matching the current circulating strain. And a famous study by a man named Cherry, um, this is a quote from him. He says, because of something known as linked epitope suppression, all children who were primed by DTAP vaccines will be more susceptible to pertussis throughout their lifetimes. And there is no easy way to decrease this increased lifetime susceptibility. So basically, if you want to have any hope of having mild symptoms 
and it's working less and less every year, you ha- you have to become a perpetual customer to a, a trivalent vaccine, and you know with its aluminum adjuvant and all the risk that comes with it. Look in the, any of the vaccine insert products, you'll see all of the adverse events that have been reported, which are quite significant. And a huge problem is, is there's tetanus in each and one of these vaccines. Repeated vaccination leads to danger of hyperimmunization of particular concern for tetanus vaccine. Um, and there are all these PubMed articles. There's some of the numbers there for the PubMed articles. Um, so hyperimmunization to tetanus can lead to something called antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a blood clotting disorder and one of the leading causes of infertility in the United States for women today. Just, you know, am I saying for sure that's it? Well, you know, common sense, you just go look at what's going on. It's absurd. How does given a pregnant woman um, this shot for a vaccine that permanently skews them to always be susceptible pertussis, how will that in any way protect them from pertussis? I'd like to know. Um, I'd also like to encourage people to, oh, I guess I've got this repeated. See, I was going too fast. We have an aluminum page on our website, informedchoicewell.org, that gives you so many studies over the years, dozens and dozens of aluminum um, toxicity studies so I encourage you to go there. And of course, the NFID did not talk about anything about the vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And we're showing people now the wonderful pilot survey that was done by the control group study um, that clearly shows that the individuals have zero vaccines are far healthier throughout their lifespan than individuals who are getting vaccinated because you know, they're not looking at the big picture. The the vaccine makers, public health, are refusing to look at the big picture. Does attempting to avoid symptoms in childhood to certain diseases actually lead to healthier people throughout the lifespan? All the independent studies say no, um, but the CDC refuses to do these studies. And that is a huge concern. Okay. So then the next, how are we doing on time here? 737. So then the next thing, Bob, that I wanted to, um, that I wanted to move on to was the bulk of their study where they are talk or their presentation where they're talking about vaccine, um, hesitancy and the language. And, um, I don't understand how this is legal. It surely isn't ethical. Um, the, Excellent. So all of these entities, public health agencies, the CDC, Department of Health, Tennessee Department of Health, you know, all of them and this NFID organization, they all provide materials that coach doctors how to get everybody to choose vaccines as if they are there's only one good choice and that's it. So yes, pivoting is a term that they say, if somebody comes to your office and um, is con- has a voice as a concern, don't talk about it, pivot away from that. Pivot the conversation to the disease itself, not the things that they perceive. The example they give was a, a pregnant woman being told you need to get the COVID-19 says, um, 
I read about this on my Facebook moms group. This woman got the COVID-19 vaccine and now she can't get pregnant. The response that NFID says you should give as a practitioner is, there is so much information out there. It can be hard to figure out what is evidence-based information and what is not based on evidence. Let me now tell you what I know about COVID-19 vaccines and fertility. And then the practitioner is encouraged to say, quote, the COVID-19 vaccine will not affect fertility. Getting COVID-19 on the other hand can have potentially serious impact on pregnancy and the mother's health. So in this NFID presentation, they give no citations to back that up. And as you and I know, Bob, there, this has not been proven. In fact, the opposite has been proven. It's very scary. The data on fertility and uh, outcomes for babies coming out uh, with COVID-19 shots. Yes. Not, not happy. Very, very, very concerning. And this is coming out of um, health organizations around the world. A lot of it is published, peer-reviewed. You can find it, but these entities are not talking about it. Then they talk about how robustly safety-monitored COVID-19 is. We will bypass that. We all know it's nonsense, but apparently you're supposed to tell the people in your office that, oh, don't worry, they are so vigorously tested. We don't have time to take down each and every one of those um, systems there. And so then here's another case scenario. Um, 40 year old guy named Oscar, um, who says that he has heard that, let's see, where is that? There was one, um, sorry, I'm not, I'm reading it too quick. Well, we'll go ahead and um, scan that one. But basically you just talk them out of it. Communication approaches, assume vaccination is the default through presumptive communication. Where have we heard that before, Bob? Presumptive communication. Um, I used to use it when I was a software salesperson. Ah, yeah, it's it's a sales trick, and and doesn't doesn't sales tricks violate your oath of office as a practitioner? <laughs> to you use shouldn't have to sell anything. These no. these products should sell themselves due to their actual safety and actual efficacy. Yeah. So this says introduce. Introducing the vaccine as though the healthcare professional expects the person will agree to it, called the presumptive or announcement approach, rather than as being potentially optional. Oh boy, you don't want it to be potentially um, optional at all. Always just assume and then nod politely. Um, then you can have nudging, nudging through motivational interviewing, you know, just- That word nudging, just kind of makes me shudder. Yeah. It sounds like coercion. Like, why don't they just call it coercion? Yeah. They act as if the average person is too stupid to go look it up and to read the vaccine inserts to understand. I'm going to remind our viewers, FDA is very specific about what is required on product inserts. Manufacturers are required by law to include adverse events that are serious and and that have a biologically plausible connection to the product. If there's no way it could have been caused by this product, they are not required to put it on the insert, only if it's plausible. However, the FDA requires none of them to do any research to see if the vaccine actually caused it. 
So it leaves the consumer in a huge gray limbo. It's been reported by enough people that they had to put it on the insert, but nobody's doing any research. NIH isn't doing the research, CDC, FDA, nobody's doing the research. And that's what the wonderful um, ICANDecide.org has been uh, exploring and that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been doing so much exploring on. Um, so this cracks me up too. So communication approaches, nudging through motivational um, interviewing. It focuses on leveraging an individual's intrinsic motivation for certain health behaviors and uses tools such as active listening, reflections, open-ended questions, asking permission to provide additional information. And this one cracks me up, Bob. Acknowledging autonomy as a means to strengthen the perception that the clinician and patient are working together toward a common goal. To strengthen the perception, to not really make them actually be working together, just have the perception <laughs> that they're working together. More word salad too. Oh, oh my gosh, so much word salad. Jeez. Yeah, and just you know, just kind of milk it, just milk it, people. It's just, it's, it's really, it's really crazy. And you can get credits for all of this. Your professional education, continuing education credits? Yeah, yeah. So then I'm going to return. I've got just a couple more things I wanted to show you on my rebuttal that I put together. Oh, maybe maybe not. Maybe um, maybe I had got to the end. I believe I did. Uh, I apologize for that. Let's, let's go back to here. So this is something that bob you and i and, and lisa and our core group of informed choice washington have been discussing and it's really about bullying right now we have an entire public health industry and practitioner medical industry that's being taught to bully uh and it's got to stop absolutely has to stop because bullying, coercion, uh, providing scripts, that's stepping into the doctor-patient relationship. Doctors are supposed to, uh, the way it, it's supposed to happen is that um, vaccination policies by public health are supposed to be set at the public health level, at population level. The individual vaccine decision is supposed to be done at the individual level. I've had um, the scientific uh, chief scientific officer, the former in Washington state said that to me. And I said, but Kathy, it was Kathy Lofi of the, I used to sit that's, in that seat. Name, yeah, and I, I've been talking about this a lot recently. I said, but Kathy, you are teaching at all of these meetings, practitioners, how to vaccinate at the population level. You're giving them scripts about nudging, about, um, what was the other word there? The, um, oh, presumptive close, the presumptive and all of this, you're not teaching them how to make sure every single individual is, is given what's only safe for them. And you're not making sure they monitor health outcomes because when you vaccinate the population level, Bob, shouldn't you as a public health expert be then analyzing population health outcomes? Yeah, you're you're muted again. We got you muted, Bob. So apples yeah. to apples comparisons is what I was. Yes. Uh, saying that 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 is a good set of data. Then when you're you got to compare population data to population data. 
Right. And as we have seen the, like the, the study, the, um, science researcher at AB, Abby, two A's and a BY, I believe is right, his Peter last Abbey. name, right. Peter Abby, who showed that, you know, you can't just look at how many people get the targeted disease. You have to look at the health outcome of the individual exposed to the product. And what they saw with like the DTP shot in Africa was, yes, children were getting less diphtheria tetanus and pertussis, but they had a 10 times higher rate of all-cause mortality if they had gotten this shot. Because that, in fact, the DTP shot that they're still using in poor nations has not only aluminum adjuvants, but it still has mercury thimerosal. So their immune systems are being terribly compromised, but, but they can't get UNICEF and all these other um, organizations to stop administering it. You know, they, they just say, oh, look it, tetanus is down, pertussis is down, but they need to look at all cause mortality. They need to look at the chronic health issues. What else can they do? None of this is being studied. All of the money, Bob, is in the vaccine products and the vaccine program. There's no money left to say, you know, if we improved water, make sure everybody had adequate levels of vitamin D and A, what would that do? None of that money is being invested in there. And it's so unethical. Um, uh, you know, the beauty of COVID has been we've been breaking open. People are seeing the the wool is being pulled uh, from over, you know, uh, away yeah, yeah. from their eyes from this religion cult of vaccines. Yes. How many people before the vaccine rollout for COVID did, did people hear the word adjuvant? Yeah. And now people understand placebo yeah. a little better, too. Yeah, you know, and I like to show people this book, The War on Ivermectin by Dr. Pierre Corey. It is a brilliant book. And I love how he starts out at the beginning of this very humbly, um, you know, just admitting, I believed in the system. I believed in vaccines. I thought all you people over there were crazy nutters until COVID. And then he began to explore and go down uh, the rabbit hole. And it's... Um, yeah. And he just, he had the humility to say I was wrong. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we need people to do. Um, and I kind of remember there's a video out there. I guess we just got one minute. I've been blabbing. Um, there's, and so we're, I'm going to make sure next week, Bob, that I bring your information about how to opt out of the IIS of people who want to pull away from all the tracking system. Let's, let's get on that. We'll talk about that next week. Sure. Sure. Um, we do have uh, on our on our uh, Facebook page anyway. It's already been posted, the advice and the steps and the information and the links. So that's one start. We'll post something on our uh, website as well. Oh, that's fantastic! Time is now. Families are getting pestered, I would say, by the yeah. schools to submit their forms. So that we need yeah. to provide that advice. And in every single state, uh, well, except for maybe California and New York. <laughs> Mm. Um, I believe exemptions exist. There might be one or other two where they have not yet got back their religious exemptions. Missouri got religious exemptions just recently. So know your rights. And if you don't know your rights, email us or the, the group in your state and find out what your, how to get a vaccine exemption for your children in your state. And just make decisions on the best interest of your child's health. And don't let them nudge you or... <laughs> Persuade you to do anything that isn't going to be in the best interest of your child. I'm not um, an anti-nudger, Bernadette. 
Yeah, be an anti-nudger and study the immune system, figure out what to do to help your child be resilient so that when you make any medical decision, it's from a strength, a place of confidence and not fear. Fear is the, the weapon that they use. Um, right, right. They, even in those instructions, they went right to what about the disease? What about the disease? Yeah. I'm going to remind you that this disease can be ugly, but yeah, they're still, like you said in the previous hour, tying it together. Our bodies have an amazing healing mechanism. It just needs to be enabled. Yeah, so. it absolutely does. And I'm, I'm thinking we're just going to keep talking until we hear the music because that's usually <laughs> my segue. And I'm not quite sure where Nathan went. So we get like an extra minute on the no, air here. So. But yeah, um, thanks to KNW for letting us broadcast too. This was a great show and interesting. Yeah. Uh, like again, our previous hour where uh, Headley was talking about airplane analogies. Well, yeah. Seattle's probably the biggest center for airplane assembly and comparing that to biologic pharmaceuticals. I thought yeah. that was a good draw. Yeah. Right. You you think about all the little bits that have to go into it. And again, as I pointed out that the, all of the bits that go into making a vaccine you need to know about, but unlike the world of aircraft, when it fails, it's not publicly visible. When an airplane goes down, you know, you see it, it makes headline news, 100 people died, there's one location where the wreckage is. When a child is injured or an adult is injured, it's one vaccine at a time, it's behind closed doors, it's easy to hide it, to attempt to hide it, to whitewash it, to claim it doesn't exist, because we're not the equivalent of a plane falling out of the sky. But but COVID really is the equivalent of a plane. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. That was, a, yeah. that was closer to being a plane. And yeah. VARES, the, the VARES spikes in uh, reports uh, yeah. that you look like more like a, a plane crash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, are there any events coming up, Bob, that we, we meant to pass people on or are we kind of between? Well, in Covington, right in Covington, we're going to support the Children's Health Defense uh, and, and Inform Life or I guess Inform Choice Washington will be present in the Covington King County Parade. Oh, that's wonderful. The 4th of July parade. And I'm going to be marching in Rogersville, Tennessee in the 4th of July parade for CHD Tennessee. Nice. So yeah, so it's it's pretty exciting. I'm so uh, excited about how big CHD has gotten, getting the word out. Certainly um, getting a little more visibility right now. Yeah. But again, uh, very excited to, to start taking on all the different missions, uh, the different aspects of the missions. It all leads to better health decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? I, I think what's going on here is we've got a, a a time thing that's different. My phone says it's only seven, it's 53. And the stream yard is like several minutes ahead. And that's why we feel like the show is ending, but we, oh, we actually okay. had like a couple more minutes. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, so what else could we use? Like, I'm not used to dragging out the end of the show here. I can look around at my awesome bookshelf. My bookshelf is is quite sagging with some of the if we, amazing. If we have books. two full. How much time do we have? A couple I, more minutes. I think we've got like two more minutes. I could preview oh, the three minutes. minutes. I could preview the uh, information on the D Department of Health IIS opt out. Oh, go for it. Can you share so, there? Uh, let's see. Present. Yeah. So, you know, as you pull that up, Bob, um, the a, a couple months ago, the Vaccine Advisory Committee was all giddy because they said that the IIS in Washington State, the 
immunization information system was now linked with the Department of Defense. And we're still trying to figure out exactly what that means. So if you, you know, it's, we know that the move is afoot to globally connect everybody so that your immunization status is recorded um, globally. There we go. What are we seeing? Can you see that document? Um, No, no, that didn't quite work there, Bob. Yeah. So let's just talk about, though, the fact that all of this tracking of personal information, um, the Stepping away at the local level from these tracking systems is important. The European Union and the World Health Organization have announced a digital passport system that is coming. And we know, I need to look back. I wrote about this a couple of years ago, uh, Bob, on our website about the when they were starting to come up with COVID vaccine passports um, and those QR codes for it. And they had a whole lot of stuff. When you went down and you looked at the individuals who were creating this, um, they were all like former military people. It was really concerning. So now I, I think we have it here. The Department of Health in Washington State has a webpage, the information for parents about the immunization information system. And right there, one of the bullets, how can I opt out of the IIS? So there are the instructions. Fantastic. And fi- I find this interesting too. That's the last uh, FAQ type question they have in their list that you can leap to the bottom of the document. Okay. But there are other information bits in the previous sections that a parent would want to know about, like who can see my child's records. And then again, there's almost two steps, definitely at least two steps if you want to opt out completely. Mm-hmm. Some of these databases may be forever databases though, but you can do a little bit of work and you can fill out this opt out form. Okay. Yeah. There's a and- bunch of disclaimers and do you really want to leave the system? But, uh, <laughs> Then, then you can have three options. Remove my information from the Watch Me Grow mailing list. Remove my immunization records from the WAIIS. And remove all my information from the... So you basically, if you would like yeah. to retain your family's health privacy. Yeah. So thank you, Bob. And we'll share that again and remind people they can do this. Um, I want to tell everybody, celebrate independence. It is so important that we are a free nation. So on 4th of July next week, celebrate it big. Remember what it's all about. And remember to live a free life through making your choices. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHDTV. We'll be back next week. Thanks. Hi, I'm Brian Dacus, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PGI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit pji.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. 
My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.